All right, let's go ahead and uh, grab our Bibles. Go ahead and open up to 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10. We're going to do something a little different this morning. I'm going to go ahead and pray for us, and then we'll dive in, okay? So let's pray together. Father, um, as we come to this part of our worship where we open your word together to, to hear from you, God, we ask that you would speak, that you would speak through the work of your Holy Spirit, God, that you will show us more of yourself. And that in showing us more of yourself, our lives would be continuously altered to be reflections of your glory and nothing else. That you would be our highest aim. That our lives would mirror that of Jesus. We pray that you will be with us this morning, that you will bless the reading of your word, and that you will magnify yourself in our time together. We thank you for the word that you have given us, and we pray now that all the many distractions of life will just fade so that our attention can be on you and nothing else this morning. Will you speak and will you be faithful to change lives this morning? It is for your glory that we're here. It's by your grace that we have your word. Now may we be filled with joy in reading and studying it. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. For the last three weeks, we have been going through our purpose series, looking at why we exist. Um, we reworked our mission statement, and our mission statement is now this, that we exist to glorify God by making disciples through, through the gospel, in community, and on mission. And this week, we'll wrap that series up. And so far, we have covered what it looks like and what it means to live through the gospel, um, what it means and looks like to live in community, and what it looks like and, 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 and leads us to live on mission. Today, we're going to see kind of what the base purpose of all of that is, and that is to live for the glory of God. I told you to go ahead and open to 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10.31 will be our base text. We'll be all over the map, so get ready. Uh, but this is the root of where we'll be today. I know this is typically unusual for us to, to be in one verse, but it is the premise of where we're going to be and where it will lead. So 1 Corinthians 10.31 says this, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of of God. Now, I want to give a little bit of context because it's always dangerous to pick a verse and then just roll with one verse without ever looking at the context of what it means and where it's from. So we need to see where we're at and why that verse is fitting, okay? 
And what we see here is that Paul is writing to the church at Corinth about twisting Scripture. Their whole purpose of the book of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, but really 1 Corinthians, is Paul addressing this church who he had planted, who he had built up, and who he, he'd moved on, and he's done the same work somewhere else. He's planting other churches. That's, that's what Paul would do. Is he would come in, he would start a church, he would build up their people, and he would move on to the next town and do the same thing. Well, apparently after he leaves, they go completely wild. And they begin to twist the scripture and, and do all these other sorts of things to fit what they really wanted. Um, they had turned their communion services into big drunken parties. Um, they were pushing people who were lower on the economic scale to the side. Um, they were doing all sorts of really odd things. And so Paul is writing this letter to the church at Corinth addressing all of these things, reminding them of the purity of the gospel and the teachings that they had heard from him at first. And over the last couple chapters in 8 and 9, they um, are dealing with a lot of idol worship and sacrifices and all of this stuff. So Paul begins to address that specifically. And in, and in this chapter specifically, he is talking about refraining from eating food that has been sacrificed to idols so as to not partake in an odd practice. And so his message to them, and, and really the message for us, is pretty clear. That in all things, even the simple act of eating food should be done for God's glory. And so the main idea of where we'll be today is this, that Christians live passionately in pursuit of God's glory because He alone is worthy. And with that being said, we begin asking the very first question, why should I glorify God? If it says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God, why? Why should I glorify God? Right off the bat, we answer that question with this, that God alone is worthy of glory. If you will, hold your finger. I told you we're going to be all over the map. Hold your finger there and flip to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. It, it will be on the screen, I think. I think I put it up there. While you're turning there, a little background. So Isaiah, called by God to be a preacher of the word, is preaching to a, a pretty um, hard group of people, but... They're, they're people who love the Lord or who are part of God's people. And, and he's constantly telling them, like, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Woe is you, woe is you, woe is you. They live under a king who is not a follower of the Lord, but he is gracious to the people of God. And they know, however, that his successor is not. So if anything ever happens to King Uzziah, they're in big, big trouble. Potentially could lose their freedoms um, or even lose their lives. And we pick it up in Isaiah chapter 6, and it says this, that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Now, this king, who has been good and gracious to them, has now died, and the people are in turmoil because they are afraid for their lives. They are afraid for their freedoms. The graces that have been extended to them from this king is now gone, and the king coming in was wicked. And this includes Isaiah, completely distraught. He's crying out to God. And he writes, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, the train of his robe filling the temple. 
So in his cries to God, God had been gracious to Isaiah, his prophet, his preacher, by giving him a picture, an image, a vision of Jesus on the throne, high and lifted up, ruling and reigning over all things, as to remind him it doesn't matter who the king is, the ultimate king is greater. I've got this. I'm in control. And the train of his robe filled the temple, verse 2, and above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Now, picture this. These are angels who were created by God to live in the presence of God for all eternity. And God creates them with six wings. Two were pretty obvious. They fly. Two, they cover their feet as to show humility, to cover themselves in the presence of God. But then they're created with two to cover their face. Now, again, this is just pointing to the greatness and the glories of God. Because if God created these angels to live in His presence for all eternity, and He creates them with wings to cover their face, as to show that even in my presence for all time, these beings can't look upon my glory. How much more then should we bow our face to the glorious King of all? And he goes on in verse 3, and one called to another. So these angels, so give this picture, Jesus, high and lifted up on this throne, these seraphim on either side, and they're calling to another, they're shouting to another, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. No other attribute of God has meant, is mentioned in Scripture three times like this. And it happens twice, here and then in Revelation 4. Not His love, not His mercy, not His goodness, His holiness. Ascribing to His glory. And as they are shouting, the foundations, verse 4, the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me. So Isaiah, who had been preaching the good news, who had been calling people to repentance, has now come face to face with the king of glory. And instead of saying, woe is you, he sees for the first time how small he is in light of the glories of God. And he says, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Check this, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. He is holy. Holy, holy, holy. Only God gets that designation. Only God is attributed that. There are none of us who are holy. Only God is holy. And not only is He holy, but He's holy, holy, holy. He's also the creator and sustainer of all things. Again, hold your finger in 1 Corinthians 10 and go backwards to Romans chapter 11. While you're turning there, Paul has used the book of Romans. It's a letter to the church at Rome. I'm just completely laying out the good news of Jesus. Telling them of their sin and their hopelessness without Christ, but then he gives them the hope, their only hope, which is in Christ, and he begins to assure them that they have been set apart by God. And then at the end of chapter 11, he goes into this little bit of a doxology, and he just kind of stops 
And in verse 33, 33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? And then look at this in verse 36. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. There is no one like Him. He is the one who has created all things and He sustains all things. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. But not only is He holy and not only is the creator and sustainer of all things, but He is also the only one who is worthy to open up the scroll. Again, hold your finger in 1 Corinthians 10 and go to Revelation chapter 4. I believe I started in verse 11, but I want to back up to verse 6. You know what? Let's go all the way to verse 1. Verse 1, 4, verse 1. This is John, right? The apostle John, the beloved disciple, part of the inner circle of Jesus. After he had been exiled to the island of Patmos, he gets this vision of what to write, this revelation of Jesus. And he writes, starting in verse 1 of chapter 4, And this, uh, after this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. This is the same image that Isaiah had gotten, okay? Verse 3, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald, and around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and pearl, peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there it was, were a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like that of an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, again six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, get this, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is who is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who was seated on the throne and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, here we pick up in verse 11, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Chapter 5, verse 1. And then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loud because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. 
So apparently there's this scroll that, that holds the keys to all of life, and there's no one in the entire universe worthy of opening it. No one in the heavens worthy of opening it. And John, in his vision, begins to weep. And look at this, verse 5. And then one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Speaking of Jesus, Jesus has conquered death. Jesus has defeated Satan. He alone is worthy. Verse 6, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes. And there were seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went out and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. The voice of many angels. Numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Saying with a loud voice. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and under, in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and they worshipped. God alone is worthy of glory. He is the only one who is holy. He is the creator and the sustainer of all things. And he alone is the one worthy of unrolling the scroll of life. So why should I worship and glorify God? He is worthy. And the scripture demands it. All of God's word points to him and proclaims him as the ultimate object of glory. We could sit here all day going from Genesis to Revelation, seeing how all of scripture ascribes to the glory of God above all things. He alone is worthy of our worship. But now we have to simply ask the question, then how do I glorify God? We've seen just briefly why we should glorify God. But how? How do I glorify God? Again, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. In all things, in life in our relationships, in our work. Whatever we do, whatever we do, we do it all for the glory of God. We don't just go to church for the glory of God. We do all of life for the glory of God. We don't treat certain people right for the glory of God. No, we treat all people right for the glory of God. We don't give just so we can be 
seen as giving God glory. No, we give because we are actually giving God the glory. We do all things for the glory of God. Now, this does not mean we live this way to earn God's favor. But we do so as a grateful response to his love for us. We love because we have first been loved. We serve because we have first been served by God. That's why the gospel is so important. Because it shows us we cannot attain salvation on our own. We can't receive any sort of merit from God. Our only hope is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Him taking on our sin upon Himself and bearing the wrath of God for our sin. And God takes the righteousness of Jesus and He takes our sin and He swaps them. And so we're no longer seen as vile, wretched sinners. That is, for those who have trusted in Jesus, we're not. We are seen as righteous before God. With that being said, it's probably a good practice to develop to ask when I'm doing anything or going anywhere or really in all of life to be asking, how can I glorify God in this particular situation? Whether it be a good situation or bad, that doesn't matter. We always should be asking, how can I glorify God in this? You know, it's easy when things are going great to say, how can I, I'm, I'm going to glorify God in this. But when all the world seems to be crumbling around us, it's a lot harder to say all glory to God. But whether good or bad, all should be done for the glory of God. What benefit is that to us? What benefit is it to ask, how can I glorify God in this moment, in this situation, in this circumstance? It's beneficial so that I can always be faithfully praising His name. All glory. One thing that you've heard us say quite often is we refer to the Westminster Catechism, which is basically a set of questions and answers that helps us develop an understanding of what the Bible is teaching us. And the very first question in the Westminster Catechism says, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Our primary purpose in life is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And, and I know it seems odd, like, how can I glorify God and find joy in that when I'm having to do things I'm not, not really wanting to do? Because when we're ultimately glorifying God, that's when we find our most joy. And when we're seeking the true joy that comes from the Father, He's going to be glorified. Listen to what we see in Colossians 3.17. It says, and whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And whatever you do, every word you speak, every deed you take part in, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. 
our primary purpose of life, our primary aim in life, the highest affection of our life must be God's glory. I love this note from the Life Application Study Bible. It says this, God's love must so permeate our motives that all we do will be for His glory. And it goes on, it says, Keep this as a guiding principle by asking, Is this action glorifying God? Or how can I honor God through this action? I love that. That God's love must so permeate our motives that all we do will be for His glory. This is where we should step back and really rejoice in the grace that's been given to us. Because if we ask right now, are we doing everything in our life for the glory of God? We should all with a resounding cry yell no. Yet for those who have trusted in Jesus, God doesn't see those faults any longer. God doesn't see those shortcomings. He sees a reflection of his son, Jesus, the perfect spotless lamb. So remember that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. You want to know true lasting joy? Give God everything you have. Lay your life completely at the feet of Jesus, and let him use you for his glory. And in his glory, you will find joy. Now, what happens when we live for God's glory? We got into that a little bit, but what happens? The first thing that happens when we live for God's glory is this, that God is honored and he is worshiped. Psalm 86, 9 says this, that all the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. Do you know there's coming a day when life will end for all of us? And at that day, Scripture says that every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every one shall declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, what does that mean? Because if you read that at face value, it seems that we can just do life how we so choose, and then at the moment of death, we will still give God the glory, that we will be entered into His family, His fellowship. But that's not what it's saying. What it's saying is this, that there is coming a day when every one of us will stand before the holiness of God. And for those who have never trusted in Jesus, who have never surrendered to Christ for salvation, we will see the presence and the holiness of God, and we will know all was true. He was the only one capable of redeeming us. And we will give Him glory. We will not stay in His presence. We will be cast in to eternal separation from God. But all will ascribe glory to His name. 
So don't hear a verse like that and think, well, I've got plenty of time because we don't. We never know what tomorrow will bring. We never know when our days will be cut short. We never know when we will stand before the holiness of God. So if you're living life and you're kind of, you know, trying to skirt around the edges and you think, I'll be okay. I'll just check this box here and I'll do this here and and I'll, I'll be okay. It doesn't work that way. Scripture says that there is none good. No, not one. The only hope we have in standing before God and being received into an eternal worship of Him in heaven is through Jesus Christ the Son. Jesus says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you want salvation, you come get it through Jesus. Trusting in Him as the only hope you have. If you reject Jesus, you reject the graces of God. And heaven is definitely not going to be your eternal home. But there will be a day where all nations will worship Him because they will see Him for who He is. If you want to be there on that day and hear, enter in my good and faithful servant, then you need to trust in Jesus. If you want to be there on that day and hear, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, keep on living life the way you so choose. But you will give him glory. I think that that promise is quite powerful. We see people every day who oppose everything and anything ascribed to God and His glory. Brilliant people like Stephen Hawking who spent his entire life trying to prove that God didn't exist. At his death, I'm sure, probably no longer bound by a wheelchair, stood before God and fell on his face and worshipped. And it was too late. We will all stand before him and we will ascribe him glory, whether we live for him or not. All nations. So what happens when I live for God's glory? God is honored in the present and he is honored for eternity as I worship him for the rest of time. This is why studying God's word is so vital. Right? Because the more you know God, the more you love Him, and the more you desire to please Him. If, if I'm studying His Word, I'm, I'm gaining more and more knowledge of the grace and, 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 and wisdom and, and power of God. That's why Paul could break out into a doxology in Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and, and knowledge of God. I can't get that if I never open my Bible. I can't get that if I never come face to face with the God of the universe through his word. Studying the word is, is everything for us because it shows us and reminds us and, and God speaks to us through his word of what he is doing and what he has done and what he will do. The more we know him, the more we love him and the more we want to please him. Because we begin to see who we are in light of who He is. A stained sinner 
in front of a glorious, glorious, pure God. And again, once we come to Jesus and we ask Him to save us, God no longer sees that stained sinner. He sees one covered with the pure sacrifice of Christ. Listen to what D.A. Carson says about living for God's glory. What Christians do should always be motivated by their desire to glorify God. Not our desire for somebody else to glorify me. Not for our desire to receive some great gift or some gain, worldly gain. No, what Christians should do What Christians do should always be motivated by their desire to glorify God. The glory of the holy God nullifies the slogan, I have the right to do anything. That's typically our mindset, isn't it? That I have, that's that's the modern message of society, right? I have value, I have worth, so I have the right. No, no, not not in the face of a holy God. So he says, the glory of a holy God nullifies the slogan, I have the right to do anything. Not everything is permitted. Christians must seek to avoid causing non-Christians and Christians to stumble. And referring to 1 Corinthians 10, it says, this principle governs Paul's behavior. He seeks not his own advantage, but the good of others so that unbelievers may be saved. When we live for God's glory, God is glorified and He is honored and He is worshipped. And we also see that people get saved. As we expend our lives and we give our lives for the glory of God, others will come to faith in Jesus because they will hear the good news of Jesus because we will tell the good news of Jesus. When the greatest news in the history of the world, takes hold of you. You know what you do? You share it. You share it. You can't contain it. I've, I've told you this before. I've referenced this before, but I've kind of likened this to um, a couple finding out they're pregnant for the first time or any time. There's like no news that you, tr- that you can have the hardest time concealing other than that. Like You, you just around people and, and you just have this look, you have this glow and, and you just want to tell this good news and, and most of the time people know before you even say it. How much greater is the gospel of Jesus than that? And with very little effort we conceal it. But when we live for the glory of God, others will be saved because we will tell of the glories of God. We will tell, tell of the good news of Jesus. Another aspect of that is that it's unnatural for us to live for someone else, right? Like, if, if I'm living for someone else, if I am doing everything within my power, in my being for someone else, it's odd. That's not who we naturally are. Our natural tendency is to be on top, to be number one at all times, But the glories of God, being saved by Christ, changes that. That's the mindset of Jesus. I came not to be served, but to serve. 
And when Christ saves us, he gives us that same motive, that same thing. So when we begin to live life for someone else, people begin to take notice. And we can point them to Jesus. But not only is God honored when we live for His glory, not only is He worshipped when we live for His glory, and not only are people saved when I live for the glory of God, but I am also filled with true, everlasting joy. Flip over to Psalm 16. Starting in verse 5. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because He is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. When I set the Lord always before me, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. But what about the hard times? What about the times where things are falling apart, where I get bad news or, or things just don't go our way? Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and the promise of heaven. Keep the Lord always before you. How? How can we do such a thing? Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4. Got to back up to verse 1. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw... The holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne say, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And leave it at verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. God alone is worthy of our glory. God alone is. And we are to give Him everything we have. 
He is our ultimate aim in life. To glorify Him. And I know that sounds odd because that's unnatural to us. It's unnatural for us to ascribe all glory to someone else. But that's what Christ does when He saves us. He takes all of the bad and replaces it with His righteousness. And we're no longer who we were. We are new creations in Christ. The old has passed away. The new has come. That's why Paul could say, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives within me in the life. I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me. We are not our own. You are not your own. We are created by God for God. And at the end of the day, we can make one of two choices. We can choose to submit everything we have to God and be saved by Christ from all of our sin. Or we can reject God and hold tightly to our sin and be separated from Him from eternity. But for those who trust Jesus... We have an eternal hope that all things will be made new. So as we have seen over the last few weeks, it's our belief and it's our trust and it's our hope in the gospel. Our living in community and our living on mission that leads to making disciples. And it is that way of life that brings God the most glory. So I'm here to say, if our lives, if your life, if my life, is striving to attain anything else above and beyond the glory of God, then we must repent. God does not only want a little bit. He wants it all. And I don't want to hear the arguments, well, that makes him pretty egotistical. No. Can't describe God in such a way. If it were me and I was demanding all of your glory, yes, you could say that. But God is God, and we are not. He alone is worthy of worship. He alone is worthy of honor. He alone is worthy of glory. And all of life is meant to be lived for His glory. So whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Let's pray. Our Father, may our lives be ever altered to reflect your glory above all things. Will you continue to shape us, mold us into the people that bring you the most glory?
And today, God, will you save those who have been running from you? Who have not really given their lives to you, trusting you and you alone for salvation. And Father, will you reawaken those of us who have, who have failed to give you glory in all things. And may we do all of this by your grace, for your glory and our joy. In Christ's name, amen.